Before we get started, my new book, Building a Story Brand, is out now. You can get it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. It's all about the idea that if you are trying to tell your company's story, you are losing money. Never tell your story. Only invite customers into a story. That's what they want. The customer is the hero, not you. It is the key to growing your business. Billion-dollar brands understand it. If you want to understand it, by building a story brand today on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Now, on with the podcast. Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hi, Don. How are you, J.J.? Good, how are you? J.J., I want to play a game with you. Go. That I usually play with... Rob Bell. Really? Yeah, I don't know Rob very well. We've gotten yeah. together five or six times, uh -huh. but we hardly ever even catch up. We just uh -huh. start playing this game where I go, <laughs> tell me a story. And he's usually working on some piece of fiction in his head. That he's I don't, doing it. I don't know if he's ever done anything oh. with him. Anyway, we usually have a throwdown. Uh -huh. I've never won. <laughs> Ever. I've never come remotely close uh -huh. to beating Rob Bell in He's a storytelling He's got 500 world. stories in his head. Yeah. yeah. I'll be like, there's a little kid with a wagon, yeah. and he lost a wheel on the wagon. <laughs> and he's got elves and dwarves and wars and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, you win uh, 15 minutes in. But our podcast today, we have an expert storyteller. Yeah, like and a professional. A professional. That's what she does for a living. She tells stories for a living. Yeah. Doesn't write them. She tells them live in front of audiences. Yeah. And she's going to unpack for us how to do it. Yeah. So next time you're at a dinner party, you are going to wow the dinner party. <laughs> They're going to be amazed. But you're a storyteller. Yeah. You were an improv theater. You've mm -hmm. written a pilot TV show that was yep. being created. I challenge you now. To tell a story? Yeah, you got like three minutes. Well, I'm not going to tell a story. I'm going to tell what the story I want to tell. <laughs> so a story you're working on in your head. In my head. This is a movie that I want to write where yeah. it's actually based on kind of true historical events. Yeah. Where right at the beginning of the Vietnam War, mm -hmm. basically if you were married, you did not get drafted. Oh, at the that, beginning. This, yeah, towards like when the conflict was getting started gotcha. at the beginning. If you were married, you were exempt from the draft. Well, on a Thursday afternoon, I believe it was. This is all real true. At 5 p.m., East Coast time, there was a bill that was signed that said, if you're not married by midnight tonight- True story, this, this is This really actually happened. Yeah. Midnight tonight, then you are no longer exempt from the draft. That's an element of story yeah. structure that helps. It's a time limit. Yeah, time limit. So Ticking they, bomb. So it was signed at around 5 p.m. Eastern time, which is 2 p.m. West Coast. Effective immediately? Effective at midnight, oh, at, at midnight. by midnight. Gotcha. So basically the only place you could get married at that time, like without blood tests and getting everything, was Vegas. <laughs> so every bus, train, plane from the West Coast, like from California and around that area, was filled going to Vegas. And it is the weekday in America where most marriages happened in history. Like it was that that's one true. day. That's it's actually true. true. That is and amazing. So, that is, I can't believe that's never been done. Yeah. And so that actually happened. So my story that I want to tell is a story about a kid who was, because it was the same year that Cal State Bakersfield opened. <laughs> I did some research. <laughs> and so he got a scholarship to Cal State Bakersfield and got drunk and kicked off the football team. And uh -oh. now he's like- Yeah, no, the college exemption. Yep, he doesn't have the college He's exemption and now he has like he finds out he has to get married that night. 
And he ends up, you know, there's this whole thing where he and his friends have to make it to Vegas. He asks his next door neighbor to marry him. And she decides yes, because she's escaping kind of a bad relationship. And they make their way to Vegas to get married by midnight. They're not 21, so they can't gamble legally to get the money. They get robbed. It's a great story in my head. And they're exploring what is real love. All that stuff? Yeah, are, totally. Are, are, are you too shallow to put that? Way too shallow for that. Go, well, actually, what it, I, spoiler, they don't get married because they actually just, fall in gonna love. Nobody's going to go see. Oh. Spoiler, because they actually fall in and love. And they want it to develop. They want it to be real so they don't get married, and he ends up going to Vietnam. Can you not give away what happens to him in Vietnam? He dies. Why in no, the world I just, would you go I don't see know. the movie? <laughs> no, he doesn't really. <laughs> You're like he the trailer back. that shows you I all know. the best parts. I, well, I, it's worst not parts. fully written. That's why I told you it's a story I want to tell. This is I'm not telling the story in this moment. I'm that, working up towards creating the story. And this is a real, like, I've thought about it for having years. having flashbacks of times with Rob Bell. Yeah. I've been beaten out of the gate. I, I got nothing on that. That's what I want to do. I want to do that movie. I want to tell that story. <laughs> I actually went to the Lyndon B. Johnson Library in Austin. I've been there. They actually highlight when that law was passed in the museum, and they actually have the original documents there. You can get copies. Like on display or in the archives? There's a display highlighting that it happened, but then in the archives, you can actually get copies of the actual piece. Wow. Yeah. I've done a lot of research on this. Uh, I'm well. writing that movie. You know, well- I'm going to say this right now. We're writing that movie. I'm not writing. Yeah, you are. No, that's no, yours. You are. It's all yours. No, no, yours. no, no. We're going to do it. I think it's a fantastic yeah. plot line. And so I think you, you got to be careful because it's going to get stolen. Right? Well, I have it on record now. <laughs> that <laughs> I don't know is, if that matters. It matters. <laughs> it matters, people. Copyright. Famous Hollywood lawyers don't care. <laughs> they will outspend so you in court. Like, yeah. I love that story. I can't believe it's never been told. Actually, I can't either because yeah. that is actually fantastic. Yeah. Okay, here's mine. Okay, go. It has a bit of a, a spiritual bent. Is that okay? Always. Okay, there's a, a guy lives in Cannon Beach, Oregon, mm-hmm. near Haystack Rock, beautiful place, you know, drizzling all the time. Yep. He's in his early 70s, okay. late 60s, early 70s. He is holed up in a cabin on the beach, mm-hmm. and he goes for a walk on the beach every morning, always by himself. One morning, he encounters a youngish Scottish man over from Scotland okay. who recognizes him. Really? Most of the town knows to leave him alone. Mm-hmm. And he says to him, I heard a rumor you were here, and I've actually had your book on back order for the last 10 years. I mean, I don't mean to bother you, but are you going to finish it? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I've ordered it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? And yeah. through some rigmarole with the publisher, it was supposed to come out, and then he pulled it. Yeah. But this guy actually had one on order and this sort of thing. This sets into motion some tension between them. This guy yeah. doesn't want to talk about it. Yeah. But he has been, the Scottish guy has been brought in by a local religious head of some like Methodist church uh-huh. denomination thing is there in the city. He is a up-and-coming sculptor. The church denomination head has been given a giant, very expensive, priceless kind of piece of marble, giant piece of marble. Yeah. And they have trusted this guy, and they've said, just do something that speaks to the grace of God. That's it. The shtick is, though, they're both atheists. The sculptor and, and the, writer the writer are both atheists. okay. And they're both stuck. Uh-huh. And they get into these long conversations in the studio. He's just looking at a blank piece of marble. He can't do anything with it. Yeah. Because he doesn't know anything about the grace guy. He doesn't believe in the grace guy. He doesn't believe in God. Yeah. But they both believe, are tempted to believe, that in creating great art, you channel something. Mm-hmm. And they don't know what that something is, but you channel something. And that's the only thing they can go with. Like, maybe there's something else, because it doesn't feel like... At the end of a piece of art, we did it. Yeah. It feels like we channeled something that did it. 
So it's really a conversation about art between two artists. But, you know, the writer, he's drinking too much, blah, blah, blah. And as the sculptor begins to, because he's being paid to, believe in God, because he's got to to finish this work, the writer gets more and more tense. And it comes back to the reason he didn't finish the book was because 10 years earlier, he had married a younger trophy wife. Uh They'd had a kid. Yeah. The kid got washed out in a gully into the ocean, into a riptide. Young boy, four years old. The wife goes to rescue the child. Yeah. And they both drown. No. Yeah. And he describes, like, you know, seeing her hand coming up out of the waves the last thing he saw. And and that's why he's, look, if you can't tell me yeah. that a god would kill a, a four-year-old and a woman as beautiful as yeah. the love of my life. And he never wrote again, never wrote another word. And so there's this tension. And so the sculptor says, look, you got to go to Italy. You got to see the Pieta. You got to go to the Vatican and all this kind of stuff. You can't tell me that Michelangelo created this stuff. Yeah. You know, it just doesn't work that way. So, you know, they're arguing about this. He actually goes, you know, he goes to Italy. You know, they sort of, they lose their friendship. Comes back to town months and months later. The Scottish sculptor is gone. And he overhears in the cafe some tension around the town, around the village, of he basically turned in crap. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he feels like, I won. Yeah. Right? Like, you didn't channel anything. You turned in stuff. They're all saying it makes no sense. Yeah. But they paid $100,000 or whatever, some giant amount of money yeah. for the sculptor. So he gets curious. He walks over to the outdoor courtyard where this thing is supposedly going to be, and they're already saying they want to move it out. Yeah. And as he walks in the courtyard, it's just an unexplained sculpture of a hand coming out of a wave. Shut your face. And that's the end of the movie. Shut your face. <laughs> you like it? Shut your face. <laughs> oh, my god! And it is a picture of the proof of the grace of God. Oh, my goodness. You like it? I do. You ready for the title? Yeah. The Marble Dead. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I like it. I like it. You're writing it. You're doing it. We're doing it. I think we do yours first and get a ton of money. <laughs> and then, <laughs> then we do ours and yeah. like eight critics go, yeah. we really like yeah. it. It moved We me. do kind of the, <laughs> the blockbuster hit and then we go the indie like passion project. We've also foreshadowed something. We got to get Rob Bell on the show to just tell a story. To do a story. Yeah. Yeah. Rob, if you're listening, that Please. is an open invitation. Come on, Come on Rob. I want to hear about the... He had one like mountains and dwarves he, he and they were trying to get up this mountain. He yeah. has a million. Smart guy. Trisha Rose Burt is our guest. And I first heard Trisha at a charity function. Mm-hmm. I hate to call it that, but it's called an Evening of Stories, an organization called Porter's Call. Our friend Al Andrews puts it on, yes. raises money to help folks out. I call it a charity function, but really it is a gala of an evening. Yeah. At the Franklin Theater. He does it every year. Storybrand buys a table up front. And he brings in a musician, a storyteller, and usually a poet. Yeah. And they do kind of storytelling poetry, music in the round. Trisha was last year's storyteller. storyteller. Yeah. And she blew us away. Yeah. <laughs> and so we have actually, at the end of this, gotten permission from the moth to actually include one of her stories. Yeah, because so she works with the moth. She works with the moth. And so we're going to listen to her just talking about how to tell stories. Yeah. And then we're going to listen to one of her stories. Oh, and I love it. And this is just a special little gift episode. These are the ones, the bright gems. Yeah. Amid all the business advice <laughs> yeah. that you and I get to geek out yeah. and just give something beautiful to our audience. But she actually even helps businesses. She, she goes does. in and works with businesses and helps them tell their personal stories in a business context. 
context? How do right. you connect? How do you tell stories? How do you tell well, your own story? How do you just story? speak in such a way that people will listen? Yeah, exactly. So right. she, it's not just, I mean, yes, it's beautiful and artistic, but she also- She brings it around to the audience. Yeah, she really, it comes back to where she actually goes in and helps corporations tell stories. I love it. Well, let's talk to somebody who knows a lot about story yeah. as well, even though we're incredible, <laughs> yes, clearly. Yes, clearly. I'm already thinking the guy uh-huh. who doesn't go to Vietnam or yeah. does go to Vietnam. Is the four-year-old who died. He, Wait, no, 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 that doesn't work. Oh, how can we do time <laughs> travel? We might be able to. Oh, let's ask travel. Trisha. Let's ask Trisha. <laughs> Trisha. All right. Here's my conversation with Trisha Roseberg. Trisha, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I'm on. excited about this one because you know we're a business podcast. We have a lot of business leaders, a lot of business writers, and you have your own business. But you are a professional storyteller. I am, and you're one of four. <laughs> yeah, Garrison Keeler, Chris Teeley, who's learning, <laughs> yeah. right? He's not there yeah, yet. Yeah, I've no, yeah. no offense to Chris. He's going to yeah, get there. He's yeah. amazing. You, uh-huh. and then who would be? I don't know. I know, I know a da- couple more. David Sedaris. I know a couple. Oh, thank you. Very nice company. Very nice company. <laughs> We're going to get into story structure. How do you keep an audience interested? I'm just so excited about this. But how did you get started as a storyteller? That's question number one. And two, how do you feed yourself? <laughs> yeah, that's always an interesting You're question. rolling in the dough. Uh, I mean, let me tell you, it's just pouring in. That cash, is, and th- so this is a nice... So your next book is How to Make Billions by Being a Professional a Storyteller. But actually, you do quite well, because you're good. I am good, thank you. Um, and well is a really relative term. Okay, so I was in business for years, and did public relations, and yeah. training for business clients, and then was not fulfilled. So I started going to... uh, Not fulfilled. You're sitting there, you're going, this is not doing it. Time is ticking. I'm made for something else. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I I mean, I was just like, this is not doing it for me. I mean, I was really good at it, but I was miserable. I was Mm -hmm. really miserable. And it turned out I was just in the wrong life in so many areas. But what I did, I'd always written, I'd always told other people's stories. I went to art school because I took all these different classes and then I ended up in art school. Were you in in, Chicago? No, I was at the Museum School of Fine Arts in Boston. That's right. Okay, I remember. Boston. And it was the first time I had ever been challenged. I'm like, oh my God. I mean, it really, it was so amazing to draw. And I loved it. I loved it. And so I started telling stories visually. And then in 2008, when the market crashed, or whatever we're saying it did in 2008, no one was buying visual work anymore, no one was hiring consultants, so I couldn't go back and do what I did for a living. I thought, oh, I'll just write this one-woman show that's been in my head for 13 (laughs) years, because that's so lucrative, and the cash (laughs) will just come pouring in. And so I, you know, creatively, it was very fulfilling, and I did the show, and I got a lot of good support around that. And then friends of mine up the street said, you know, you really ought to go to the moth, go do the moth, because another executive producer had said, you know, this is great, but you ought to write a book. I'm like, a book takes two long and friends said go to the moth so i started telling stories with the moth which is a and story how awesome to- is that organization they're amazing yeah they're amazing they're keeping it alive they really kudos are kudos to them they really are they're an amazing organization and so i've been very blessed to be a part of their group and i had this funny moment though to all of you who are thinking about this a friend of mine came up to me when i was really things weren't working in the visual arts and she said trisha come take this public speaking class with me i'm really afraid of being in front of audiences and i was like 
I look for audiences. <laughs> I don't even know what I'm going to say to them. <laughs> just like, so I really, you mean they'll get you an audience? I'm like, wow! You know? so, uh, so I thought, hmm, you know, maybe, maybe you ought to shift what I'm doing here. So. Yeah, very cool. Did you develop the whole one-woman play? I did. Was it a sort of memoirist kind of thing? It was and yeah. is. Yeah, yeah, I did. You know, and it and was, you still do it? I mean, you have the whole... I do. The last time I did it was in New York for the United Solo Festival about two years ago. I've done uh-huh. it occasionally for our mutual friend Amy Grant a couple times. Yeah. So I'll do it now without, I mean, to rehearse the show for one, you might as well rehearse the show for a six-week run. You know, right. when I do it now, I'll just do a reading of the show, but um, I do, I love it. And I mean, now I tell my own stories. I told mm-hmm. other people's stories for a long time. How, how do you mean? Like, like if I'm in public relations or training, I'm helping companies tell their stories. Oh, got you, got you, right? yeah. And then visually, I was telling the stories visually, and now just I do a lot of first-person narrative work and tell my own stories and yes. help other people tell their stories. So, well, it's just a fascinating form of entertainment. Beats the uh, pants off any movie. Oh, yeah. As good as the concert for your favorite band. Absolutely. And you walk away just having experienced something completely different. Also, so often, I'm just changed. Like, I hear somebody's story, and I'm a different person after I hear their story. Robert McKee says, story sets the moral compass in the brain. Wow. And I think he's right in the sense that I'll walk away from a good story with a sense of clarity that I didn't have before. And by clarity, I mean I know a little better about what's worth pursuing, what's not worth pursuing, what's worth dying for, what's worth sacrificing for, what's worth letting go, what's actually really beautiful. The fog lifts for a minute. Mm Mm-hmm. After a really good story. Oh, absolutely. Do you sense that that's what you're doing? It's all mixed, right? Like you have fun being on stage. You like entertaining people. You like seeing them laugh. You like seeing them cry. Is there a deep kind of why to it where you're going, no, I just want to lift the fog for 10 minutes and... Or is it not that conscious? Am I over? Well, you know, it? it's kind of not that... Like the first time I ever told a story... I think y'all heard it that night, How to Draw a Naked Man, about my <laughs> experience of going and drawing from the model for the first time. Yeah. I was just telling a story, Right. And then it was on air, and all these people emailed me and got in touch with me and were saying how much it resonated with them. And it made me think about what I do really differently. It was like, first of all, I need to make sure I'm telling the truth because people are paying attention. And I got to stop you. Tell the truth. You mean essential truth? You know what they call essential truth? Or they're going to fact check you? Or what no, do you mean by I that? mean, there's a, truth has an energy to it. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it has and, to be real. Yeah. And so, you know, there's no reason to make something more dramatic than it was because just telling the story and if you tell it well there's a craft to telling a story as you know that's all you need to do you don't need to make it bigger than it was or more dramatic that's than it was that's counterintuitive and even mm. even counterpractice to most storytellers right they would lean toward exaggeration and so you know you just tell the story as you remember it you tell the story and so for me i was just blown away how hungry people are for story, how hungry people are to hear other people's experiences. So I felt, I mean, this is a heavy word, it feels sort of like a ministry when I'm telling my stories or stewarding other people with their stories, helping them find and tell their own stories. I mean, it's a vulnerable place to be. Is the payoff that we all sort of realize we're not alone or you feel more connected? Yes. And story does that? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's the payoff. Catherine Burns is the artistic director of The Moth. She's brilliant. And she was rehearsing with me on a story one day. And, you know, I was rushing through things, the parts that were hard. You know, I was rushing through them because I like it better when people at the time, liked it better when people were laughing. And she said, Trisha, stop. You need to let those land. Let people lean into the silences 
you know, huh. lean into the silences. When I say something that resonates or maybe more poignant and letting people take it in, honest to God, it props you up. I mean, you're on the stage, you can be propped up by the silence of these people listening to oh. you. And those are really profound moments yeah. for me. Very powerful. Yeah. I always compare it, I'm just a public speaker, I haven't done the professional actual storytelling. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's anecdotes. I think you'd be good at it. Just a shot in the, I think you'd be good at it. I'm afraid of that much money. I'm afraid of. I know, it would change your life with all the cash that comes in. It's tough. The cars, the swimming yeah. pools. <laughs> <You> really, <laughs> clean the paparazzi is just following you everywhere, but you learn. But I compare it to being a composer. I actually went to college on a music scholarship. And I was starting to compose music. Okay, we and just so I, need to get you on stage. I'm sorry. I'm like, shh, shh, already get you on a stage. The problem was I wasn't very talented. Mm. And also I was on a tuba scholarship. So you try <gasps> composing a tuba That's symphony fantastic. and it's going to fall apart pretty quick. <laughs> There's a story. But I discovered the same joy in writing books mm. because I could guide people's emotions, which is all I was interested in with music. I wanted them to feel yeah. something. Yeah. And you think that's part of the joy of it? Oh, you're, you're yeah. You're guiding people's emotions. Like this part, it's a little bit of a roller coaster. That's a little violent, actually. It's more graceful than that. But there's a beautiful sense of we're going to go here, here we're going to go there, and the whole room is going together. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, you're very good at it. Thank you. You know, it took me a while to figure out, oh, this is what I'm good at. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> yeah. So it's not a linear path, Don. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> not a linear path. All right. Agree or disagree? <laughs> Sorry. There are bad stories that have been told. And by bad, I mean not like evil. I mean like bad, like you oh, need to work yeah. that out. <laughs> you, I don't remember, you never know yeah. if an artist like, no, all of humans are beautiful. Oh, no. I mean, and everything they do is wonderful. I mean, I've, I mean, I've sat in some things before where, you know, where a lot of money's been spent. I'm like, did anyone tell them there wasn't a story there? There's not a story. Like, what's the story? And it just pains me. All judgment like, aside. Yeah, I mean, because sometimes I think people get caught up in the packaging as opposed to what is the story what's the essence what are you trying to say yeah. you know and that's what we walk away with any horror stories have you ever just gone oh this is not going to go well i support any artist who gets out there <laughs> and says i'm going to put this out here because there's somebody out there going did you hear that trisha burt she told a story it was terrible so i'm not going to you so know so after we're finished recording yeah sure <laughs> when we're all but, you know, you do. It's kind of like somewhere along the way they forgot about the story. Yeah. You know. There are rules, written rules. I shouldn't say unwritten in storytelling. And those kind of lay over an intuition. Yes. And you've got to know, Hemingway said, every great writer has a built-in, shock-proof shit detector. <laughs> <laughs> and they know. Yeah. In fact, Tim and I were just talking about yesterday. And he said, you know, I don't know if this book is so well-written. You know, a novice writer and oh, I thought he meant your book that just came out. I was he like, said Tim, that too. your timing is not particularly good. <laughs> <laughs> he said that. He says that all the time. <laughs> I have no idea how you're pulling this off, Miller. You got no talent. <laughs> anyway, but Go he said this, and I said, I agree with you. It's not worded super well, but I disagree because this writer actually knows what's interesting, uh, and he's not rambling on and on. Where I just read, I just picked up, I believe it's a Pulitzer Prize winner who will go unnamed. I picked up his new book. I can't get into it yeah. because yeah. he yeah. thinks something is interesting that, well, to me, and I realize this is subjective, it's just not interesting. Well, and then this is one of the things we say, when I'm coaching a storyteller, if you don't care about this, I'm not going to care about it. Yeah. I need to know why this is important to you. I need to know why this is important to you, and then you need to let me know why it's important to me. But if you're, somebody's you're building just, a case, yeah. In a well, sense. it's the stakes. It's yeah. what are the stakes? What is at stake for the person involved in the story? 
I'll be back with the rest of my interview with Trisha Rose Burt in just a moment. It's everybody's favorite segment of the Building a Story Brand podcast, Marketing Mythbusters with Kula Callahan in her Wonder Woman pose. Kula, what is today's marketing myth? Here's the myth today, Don. Leads that haven't responded in a while are dead. Well, of course they're dead. That's why they're not responding. That's not true. There's no heartbeat in that. (laughs) That is not (laughs) true. Here's the thing that most people fall victim to. If they send out an email to a lead or if they capture a new lead, but that person doesn't respond and six months down the road, they still haven't responded. They think that that person is not interested and doesn't need what they're Mm. selling. That's not true. And it doesn't mean that you should not still send them valuable content that's going to help them in some way. You're saying that occasionally people wake up Absolutely. And you've just got to hit them in the right window. And it's not that the lead is dead. The window might be closed now, but that window might open in the future. Right. And here's what drives me more crazy is people who think that these leads aren't interested are scared to ask them to opt in for something else, or they're nervous to send them another piece of content that's going to be valuable because they think they're going to offend them. Yeah. It may be your content. It may be the title of the PDF that you're giving away or the subject of the email. I can't tell you how many times I delete Alan Edmonds emails. And Alan Edmonds is a shoe company. I do love those shoes. (laughs) They're very expensive, but I stay on their list because every once in a while it says close out sale. (laughs) And I open that one. And you rack up. Yeah, I bought one pair. I bought bought bought, three pairs. Well, I've gone to the store and bought a couple, (laughs) but I bought one pair off of an email. And now I get emails all the time, which I don't mind because I like looking at their shoes. But I think you're right. Yeah, so here's what our listeners need to know. If people aren't engaging with your content and they don't for, you know, six to eight months at a time, don't let that scare you. They're still on your list. They haven't unsubscribed and they're probably in some ways consuming the content that you're sending out and keep on ramping them to your services because the likelihood of them buying is probably pretty high. Yeah, and if, bottom line is they're not unsubscribing. Totally. And also, you know, here's the other thing about that is there's an incredible value to just the name of your company or your name getting into somebody's phone once a week. Absolutely. Even if they're deleting it and they're not responding, they aren't unsubscribing. Therefore, they're being reminded that you exist every week. They're just deleting it. And when the window finally opens where they might need your product, they're going to remember you because you reminded them you exist every week. I like this. I I, You keep sending them those emails and just, you know, consider it a challenge. Right. Come up with content that's going to make them want to open it, read it, and get something out of it and position yourself as the guide. And it's a great marketing myth. We do occasionally clean out our email list if somebody hasn't responded in five years. Right. We, we actually never get rid of the email, but we hit them when we do a launch or some big product launch mm-hmm. or something like that. But we don't send them podcast updates right. and stuff right. like that. So there's a benefit to cleaning out your list a little bit because you want a really sharp list. But at the same time, I like trying big things on those folks Absolutely. once a year, once every couple of years and right. waking some of them up. I think that's a good marketing myth. If you are looking for marketing tips, marketing strategies to create an entire marketing plan, plan, sign up for the StoryBrand Marketing Workshop. You can do so at storybrand.com. You come here to Nashville, Tennessee for two days. During that two days, you spend about a day and a quarter clarifying your message, and then you spend the rest of the second day taking that clear message, wireframing a website, coming up with an email sequence. You get titles for a lead generator that you're going to create. In other words, you have a marketing plan that is a complete sales funnel, at least an outline form for you to execute when you get home. We have seen businesses double, triple, quadruple in revenue when they finally got their message straight and created a marketing plan that works. If you don't think that you are going to do this on your own because you don't have the inertia to get it done, get into a room of energized people 
and known facilitators who have done it a million times before and have it done in 48 hours. Sign up at storybrand.com, register for a StoryBrand Marketing Workshop, show up in Nashville, and leave with the work done. Do it today. Kula, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, we're going to get into sort of your personal, and, mm. and maybe it's ancient, I don't know, but your personal sort of 3X structure. We're going to get into how-to here. It is here. ancient. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to get into how-to, tell an interesting story. But I want to issue a challenge to everybody listening. Tonight at dinner, tomorrow at dinner, sometime in the next seven days, tell a story. You don't even yeah. have to announce I'm telling a story. Just be at dinner and say, something funny happened. Yeah. And try to do what Trisha is about to teach us to do and see the response. Yeah. How does that sound? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are we yeah, all in? Yeah, Raise your yeah, hand. Yeah, yeah, Put yeah. your hand back on the steering okay, wheel. I'm Raise raising your hand my again. hand. There I'm we go. Hand, okay. We're all in. Okay, I want to know, how do we tell great stories? You've got a three-act structure. I do. And it does follow, you know, basically most, the ancient yeah, three-act structure. It's worded a little bit differently. But will you go through part one? There is a difference between a story and an anecdote. What's the difference? Change. The transformation yeah. of something or yeah. the character. So you can say, I was great, I went to the store and I was great, and then I came home and I was still great. None of that is interesting at all. There has to be a trans... There has to be some kind of a and transformation. And by the time I got home, I was a different person. Yeah. I mean, I realized and, and this. And even if it's a subtle change, and you can't be, it doesn't have to be something you know monumental, but just let me know there was a change and tell me why you made that change. And almost every story follows that, it's not a formula, but that sort of pattern, you've got King George and the King's Speech, and he's weeping at the beginning. He mm-hmm. can't live up to his father's legacy. He doesn't mm-hmm. have what it takes. They've chosen the wrong person. The country has been strapped with a crazy king, and by the end, he delivers a exactly. wonderful speech. He's a different person. Yeah. Luke Skywalker doesn't know if he has what it takes to be a Jedi. In the end, he's got a reward, and it's proven. And we're vested in that. Everyone wants to root for someone. We really do. I think mm. we want to root for people. And so, But if you don't have that change, it's not a very particularly interesting story. Do you think story. we're vicariously living through those characters? And by that, I mean, do you think all human beings like stories that are mostly about transformation because they want to transform themselves? Possibly. You know, I think a lot of times when we talk about telling stories and we're coaching people, it's people may not understand the situation you're in, Mm -hmm. but they'll understand the feeling. Hmm. So mm-hmm. oh, that's not, right. That's why a soccer mom will go. Moneyball was amazing. I felt like it was a story about me. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, it wasn't. <laughs> I manages a baseball team. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And she goes, I, "It's exactly what it's like to manage kids." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, in my one woman show, I do this thing where I, you know, it's about a southern woman told to be a particular way, and I careen out of control and become something different, right? Right. And there's a scene in there where I go through all the shoulds I was raised with. You know, I should be appropriate. I shouldn't draw attention to myself. I should, you know, blah blah blah. These should. And one of the most dramatic was I had a, a university professor who was from Egypt, a man, PhD, mm-hmm. in charge of international students. And he said, everything you said resonated with me. It was really my life. I was like, <laughs> yeah, okay. So I'm, you're from Egypt. <laughs> I'm from the South. So you what get this. How affirming is that? It was amazing. Yeah. And I was like, wow. And I had no idea. I just wrote it. You just write your truth. And somebody out there is going, that's mine too. There's a common thread. That's mine too. Here's the other thing. I'm kind of really going off track here. But the more specific you get in a story, the more universal it becomes. The more specific you are, way more. You know that from writing your books. Uh-huh. You want to share that one detail that everybody else can fill in the Absolutely. gaps. Absolutely. I mean, I have the scene. You all saw it when I was a dancero in high school. And we danced with the band, right? Mm-hmm. I have had so many people come up to me and say, I was at this, I was at... I mean, they know they weren't dancers, but they immediately were in an it awkward goes all place the way in back. high school. We had Luke Laird on. He's written 21, I think, number one country hits. And he has one little line in a song 
where he's across a field looking at the high school football stadium uh, with the lights on. And I mean, there ain't nobody who's heard that line who didn't go right back. They know exactly where the homecoming yeah, yeah, queen yeah, yeah. is. Yeah. She rejected them. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm already there. But it's a genius to find that. Mm-hmm. Well, John Steinbeck, Lenny walked with his palms facing backwards. You mm-hmm. fill in your brain. Mm-hmm. He has a mental disability. Yeah. And yeah. everything else fills in, and it's one line, but it's a specific detail. It's a specific one. It's the gesture. It's the look. It's that as soon as you make it specific, then it becomes universal. I'm sorry I went off track several okay. times there. Twofold question really here. Part one. Yes. You're going to be do a dinner party this week, everybody. You're going to have to tell okay. a story. Part one. Now, you talk about it being about transformation. Does that mean part one, which you call theme, and I'm not sure what you mean by theme, okay. but does that mean we have to set up the character before the transformation right away? It's kind of hard to talk about these all separately. Can I lump them all together at one time? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so the three things that make a good story are theme, narrative arc, and stakes. Gotcha. Okay? So there's, so it's not you do this, then you do this, then you do this. They interweave? Yeah, you're sort of thinking about all these things at the same time. I mean, you can think about them separately, but then you kind of want it all to be woven together, obviously. Yeah. And so there's what happens in the story, and then there's what the story's about. Right? Those are two different things. So what happens to the story, the plot of the story is, okay, I'll use me. Person in business goes to art school, realizes she's an artist. Okay, that's yeah. what happens. Okay. Yeah. But what that story's about is really fulfillment, right? Yeah. So if you know your theme is going to be about fulfillment or trying to find a fulfilling life, then it becomes your editing tool. Then and it also every- becomes universal. You realize what the universal thread is Absolutely. in all human beings. It's about fulfillment. Absolutely. And so that story could be told a different way. And you can look at the same story from very different angles, and it could be a theme about resilience, right? You know, mm. I made my way through that class. We could... All mm-hmm. the details would be about resilience. But the way I tell it in that particular way is that it's really about trying to find a fulfilling life. So every detail I'm going to stick in that story supports that theme. So a theme becomes your editing tool. Like nobody, so if it doesn't support the theme, it's got to go? It's got to go. Got to go. I love that rule. And you I'm got, glad that go. you're that hardlined on it because I think amateurs will keep it in because it's a good joke. And you know oh, no, Steve no, Taylor no. and Ben Pearson, right, here in Nashville? Oh, yes, I do. Okay, so we wrote a movie together and the funniest scene I've ever written, and we shot it. Oh. So we're 50 grand into shooting that scene. We filmed it in a cemetery, late night here in Nashville, trucks everywhere, filmed it. Great laugh, didn't support the plot, Steve cut it. Yeah. I yeah. said, Steve, you can't cut it. It's the funniest line of film. It doesn't support the plot. Doesn't support, yeah. Gotta go. Yes, gotta go. Because if you don't, you're just distracting people and they get confused and they'll miss the yeah, point. What's this about? Yeah, and you've just got to keep them focused. Mm. You know, you've got to get them focused. And if it doesn't support what the story's about, then even if it's wonderful, you have to just get rid of it and write another story where that's in it. <laughs> Can it be about two things? Can there be two themes? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, and larger works, but it's tough. It's tough. You don't have a theme and then a supporting theme. Especially if you're just getting started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep it simple. Tomorrow night's dinner party, make one Keep it simple, keep it simple, keep it simple. So do you kind of say to yourself, okay, because I'm going back to this dinner party. All our people are going to give a story here pretty soon. Something funny happened at the Applebee's the other day when I ran into my high school buddy. I wonder what the theme of that could have been. Or do you start with a theme and then try to find a story, or does it not work? Either way, way, either way. You know, you can tell the story, and then you realize, oh, my God, that's really about. So if you're meeting the high school guy who depends on, was he a friend of yours? Was he somebody you looked up to? Was it somebody you bullied? Like, I just met someone from the sixth grade that I was not particularly nice to in the sixth grade. I have not (laughs) seen her in years. Mm. And I went up to her and said, I am so sorry. I don't think I was nice to you in the sixth grade. And we went and had iced coffee, and 
fortunately, I wasn't even on her radar screen of the ones that weren't being nice to her. But she was really bullied in the sixth grade. And then I was telling her how I was bullied in the sixth grade. And so that story became about, well, redemption. A little bit of reconciliation. But reconciliation, you know. But it could be told from a bunch of different angles. But that's how. It's what's the relationship with the other person. Well, it's a powerful tool even to ask ourselves, what is the theme of this? And it filters the whole story. It does. Yeah, Just helps you put in the details tip. and take out the details. All right, I mean, now let's get to the structure. We've got to have a narrative arc. Narrative arc. So what were That's you when it point started? Point two. Yeah. Well, not part two. Point two. Point two. Yeah. Who were you when it started and who were you when it ended? Now you've picked your story, you know the theme, and you go, okay, let me isolate who I was at the beginning and who I was after that. Right. So we're going to take your case of the guy who meets his friend from high school, right? And he may have always had... Never liked this guy in high school. And then he has a conversation with the guy from high school and realizes the guy from high school's had a really hard life. Mm. And he leaves with more compassion because he realized he's heard this person's story, right? Yeah. And I have a really good friend named Adam Wade who tells the most brilliant story about buying a quarter pound of roast beef at the Hoboken ShopRite Deli, right? Okay. And he's going there and he can't find a job and he thinks the only thing that'll make him happy is this quarter pound of roast beef. And he goes in as a jerk at the beginning of the story because he's mean to the guy behind the counter. And then mid-story, he realizes he was mean to the guy around at the counter and ends up apologizing to him. And he leaves with this whole new community of people at the shop, right? Delhi. So the transformation is goes from being isolated to being in community, from being a jerk to actually having compassion for somebody. Those are the transformations that can happen in the course of a story. Is there structure inside of that narrative arc? Is there some tactical things like first there needs to be? You know, when you study Blake Snyder or Robert McKee Mm -hmm. or even Christopher Booker, they'll say this has to happen, then this has to happen, then three minutes. Minutes in, you've got to identify what the character wants, and well, it's what are the stakes right off the bat. Okay. You know, you want to know what the stakes are right off the bat. How what could important- be won or lost based on whether or not yeah. you realize the Absolutely. theme or what? What you kind of want to know what's important to that character, what's important to me in the story right off the bat, what's important to Adam Way wanting to buy this roast beef. You know, for Adam, it was really he wanted happiness, and that's what he thought I could get out of a thing of roast beef. For me, in my story, I wanted fulfillment. We need to know all that stuff right off the bat and then we can follow along the story and see when it's not working out for them when it is working out for them when they're close Mm. to it when they're not close to it and so that's what makes the story interesting yeah you know there's obstacles they're overcoming obstacles they're not overcoming obstacles you know but that's what is going to compel something must be won or lost something must be won or lost if the and little wins and losses along the way that's what keeps people interested along the way are the little wins and losses you're either moving toward or away from in every scene yeah and I think Blake Snyder actually teaches that. Yeah. He says you're either moving toward a happy ending or toward, toward a tragic ending. In every scene, there must be stakes. You also have to create a scene. When we talk to people about telling a story, think of it in carnal terms, like what are you seeing? What are you feeling? What are you hearing? Rather than saying, you know, I was hot. What does that mean? Show me what it looked like that you were hot. You know, my glasses wouldn't stay on my nose because the sweat was making them fall off. I mean, my shirt was stuck to my back. I mean, and tell it in the present tense so we're in the story with you and we know what you're feeling. Like, we can experience it with you. Hmm. Have you ever met somebody who didn't feel like they had a story and then you got to know them and you realized, are you kidding me? Well, mostly what's amazing is people don't feel like they have a voice. What do you mean by a voice? Because I hear that a lot and it means different things to different people, but they just don't feel like their voice matters. Their voice doesn't matter. No one's listened to their story before. Mm -hmm. I had a great example of working with a graduate student who wasn't doing really well wasn't doing really well in her interviews for medical school. Mm-hmm. And she was hiding what her story was because she thought people would think she wasn't stable if she told people the story. She got the short end of the stick, right? Mm-hmm. I heard her tell her story, which she was kind of keeping to herself. 
and trying to be like everybody else that was applying for medical school. And we just turned a liability into an asset. You know, if you look at a story, some people don't want to tell their story because they think it's shameful. They want to tell their story because they think they're embarrassed or nobody will understand. And if you help someone tell their story and you can say, reframe it, reframe it so it's this, you know, I've watched people just physically transform. Like Mm -hmm. instead of being hunched over, they kind of rise up. And I've seen it happen on stage where people realize people are listening to me and I'm able to tell a story I've never told before. Yeah. It's really powerful. I love the it's idea of really reframing. Powerful. That is Victor Frankl's idea. In you reframe it. Yeah. You just reframe the tragedies. You don't lie about them, but you just go, how has this been redeemed? How has this been redeemed? And how, how can this, I use- Your conscious mind will make all sorts of lists on why this is terrible. And you must use your executive brain to come in and say, we're going to actually list also how this has helped me. And it reframes your whole story. It does. And if you have somebody who's helping you in that process, then you can see it because you have somebody else reflecting to you, this is important. You know, this is an asset. It's a very powerful experience. I feel really blessed when I'm in those kind of situations. Trisha, I think we have to end on a very happy ending. That's a wonderful (laughs) thought. Thank you for coming by. Thank you so much, Dan. Will you come back? Oh, heck yeah. (laughs) We want to get you on the stage with the tuba story. Oh, heavenly days. (laughs) (laughs) That would be a story in itself. There you go. Trisha, thank you. Thank you. All right, JJ, we're actually going to hear from Trisha Rosebert from her actual story where she, I think she competed and won with the moth. And we're going to hear that story in a second. But first, I want to talk about next week's episode of the Building Story Run podcast. It's Todd Duncan. <gasps> the $6,000 egg. The $6,000 egg, which is a great dun, story. Dun, dun. Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> also a great story. He wrote a book called The $6,000 Egg, yes. and it's a book about customer service. Yes. He went into a pub kind of place that he and his family frequented. Mm-hmm. They would spend a lot of money there every year. And he basically said, hey, I've heard that you can put an egg on a burger, and I've always wanted to try it. Can you put an egg on my burger? And they said no. <laughs> and then he actually asked up, like, you know, the manager. Yeah. Like, he's like, do you have eggs? Is yeah, that why? Exactly. And they're like, yeah. But I'm they sorry. wouldn't do it. No, yeah. <laughs> and he calculated that because he was no longer going back, that they would spend between family and also business guests and big parties groups there yeah. $6,000 that year. Yeah. And so he said, you lost $6,000 because you wouldn't bring me an egg. Yeah. And that is a metaphor for customer service. And he goes into, if you want to transform your organization Mm -hmm. and convince people to be radically servant-hearted toward your customers, this is the interview and this is the book. Yeah. We love this guy. Yeah. I want to play just a little clip from my conversation with Todd Duncan. So I just saw a study that said 95% of employees prefer culture over comp. If you want to be part of a meaningful culture, then it takes leadership to lay the groundwork for a meaningful culture. And what's interesting is if you have a meaningful culture of, as you say, servanthood and delighting the customer and going over and beyond and beyond and beyond, compensation, revenue, profitability, all that takes care of itself. I have a picture in the book of the Mama D mission statement. It says, we at Mama D's are committed to giving. And then a big, bold font on the wall. It says, every guest, a superior experience, exceeding their expectations by being friendly, focused, having positive attitudes, great teamwork, and playing to win 100% of the time with our customers. It starts at the top. Any business owner, any business manager, whether you have five people or 55 or 555, 
leadership sets the hook for what you want the customer to experience. And then when people are empowered and they realize that there's fulfillment in delivering and then comp just kind of comes around. I mean, Alex, you know, made 20 bucks extra and, and the guy that owns Mama D's, it's such a profitable restaurant to blow your mind, but they don't focus on profits, they focus on people. So there you go. Yeah. A $6,000 egg. And he tells that story and he tells, gee whiz, just one of the better interviews we've done all year in terms of just straight good business advice. Now, on to our special bonus feature. Yes. The story that we promised from the beginning, an actual story from a professional storyteller, probably not going to (laughs) compete with the Vietnam (laughs) wedding story or the Marble Dead. Yeah. I mean, that one makes you laugh. This one makes you cry. (laughs) I think she's got to throw down. Yeah. She's got to see if she has the stuff. I know she can. I know she she can. I think she might. I think we might be embarrassed. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm glad they're hearing her story after ours (laughs) because then, yeah, now they don't need to judge us ahead of time. There will be no survey online. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, not at all. All right. Here's Trisha Rose Burt telling a wonderful story from her performance at the mall. Growing up, Daddy liked things to be in their place. He alphabetized our spices, he labeled our pantry, and he used one of those dilemmatic labeler things, spreads, dried goods, popcorn popper. And just like the items in the pantry, Daddy needed my older brother and sister and me to be in our place too. Now, I adored Daddy even though his need for order and discipline could seem sort of suffocating sometime. But it was predictable, and there was a kind of comfort in that. I mean, I knew what Daddy expected of me, and I knew what to expect from Daddy. Not surprisingly, there was a very particular way we were to decorate the Christmas tree. Every year, we got a Douglas fir, about 10 feet tall, And we decorate it with those really big Christmas bulbs you don't see much anymore, those great big ones in primary red and blue and green, kind of an orangey yellow, maybe some white. And we'd match these big bulbs up with reflectors. Reflectors were supposed to make the the bulbs glow more. And we'd put uh, reflectors over each socket, and then we would methodically screw in each bulb one by one in this long string of lights. And we paid the same kind of attention to the rest of the tree. We had these decorative fake birds. And Daddy would tell us to adjust the birds' wings so they looked like they were in proper flight. (laughs) Tinsel was placed, never tossed. It was like we were preparing an altar. And the most sacred elements of all were the Debbie ball, the Jimmy ball, and the Trisha ball. Now, the Debbie ball and the Jimmy ball and the Trisha ball were ornaments that Daddy made for us when we were really little, and they're all made out of the same thing. It's a white styrofoam ball about the size of a tennis ball with colored sequins, all adhered with silver straight pins. And on the Trisha ball, on the circumference of the Trisha ball, Daddy spelled out my name neatly in all capital letters, each precisely five sequins tall. And he used four colors, blue, gold, red, green, always in that order. And the colors were never mixed. 
The letter T was all blue, the letter R all gold, the letter I all red, so on. At the top of the Trisha ball was a ring of red sequins around the ornament hook, and at the bottom of the Trisha ball was a ring of green sequins with a single green sequin placed right where you'd find the South Pole on a globe. I mean, this is exactly the kind of detail that you would expect from a man who labeled his pantry. And I treasured the Trisha ball. Each year, my brother and sister and I hung our ornaments with great ceremony. And as a family, I, I just thought we were at our best decorating the Christmas tree. I mean, it was always magnificent. Then when I turned 16, my family enters into the throes of a social scandal that just turns all order into chaos. Daddy declares bankruptcy. And it was an honest mistake. He was a real estate developer who specialized in historic preservation. And he had been restoring this neighborhood that was really vibrant when he was growing up, but had gotten run down over the years. And I mean, his vision was big and his motive was pure, but it all came together just in time for the 1974-75 recession. The headlines in our local paper read, Iranian Shah loses riches right next to prominent realtor declares bankruptcy. <laughs> all mama could say was, we don't have any money for groceries. Go eat at the country club. Now, no one ever really talked about money in my household, and they certainly weren't going to talk to me about it. So I'm just sort of frantically trying to piece together all these mixed messages, and the best I can come up with is we're supposed to be very afraid and very ashamed. And the thing is, my mother was just as smart as daddy, if not smarter, but they had that unwritten contract where mama would provide the children and daddy would provide financial security. But thanks to bad timing, daddy wasn't living up to his end of the bargain. But mama was raised that her very survival depended on a man and his money, and so she was scared to death and just blamed daddy for everything. Now, along with losing his money, my father loses his mind and starts seeing a woman that we called Pigface. Her real name sounded just as bad. It, it was like she was destined to be a home wrecker from birth. I mean, she was attractive enough in a cheap, coarse kind of way and was a walking stereotype. She was 15 years younger than my father at least, had dyed blonde hair. I mean, she was a fairly large woman, and everything about her was big. I mean, she had this big jewelry and big hair, big patterns and prints on her clothes. I mean, she was from Texas, and as they say, this was not her first rodeo. <clears throat> so once Daddy starts seeing pig face, my parents separate, and... I'm the youngest of three kids, and at the time, I'm the only one at home during all this drama. And the stress is just so intense that in one week, I lose 10 pounds because I can't sit down at the dining room table long enough to eat. So when Daddy leaves, I'm actually kind of relieved. And the first thing Mama does when Daddy leaves is to go into the pantry and rip all the labels <laughs> off the shelves. Then a couple of months later, the bank comes to repossess the house because our mortgage hasn't been paid. And there's my mother, age 45, asking the banker standing in the doorway, 
and a mortgage would be what? My mom had a little stash of family money, so the house wasn't repossessed, but she did spend the first year of um, the separation drugged on the living room couch, thanks to a psychiatrist who prescribed three five milligram Valiums a day. So mama is obviously completely retreating. Daddy's basically living with pig face and her two children, which makes me feel like he didn't just leave mama, he left me too. And the whole thing is just so hurtful and absurd. I mean, I don't even recognize my parents. They're like pod people. And I don't recognize my life. It's like all the order's been ripped away, like the labels in the pantry. And, and no one is paying attention to me. I, I suppose if I'd had some you know, wild side. I could have had this crazy, reckless high school experience, but I was raised to be so good that I just kept overachieving and thinking maybe if I make an A, someone will notice me. My parents' separation lasts for three endless years. And the first Christmas of the separation, my mother announces she never did like colored lights and reflectors, and she replaces them with little white lights. Tinsel is abandoned altogether. The decorative fake birds are flying wildly in all directions. <laughs> My brother and sister and I keep just hanging our ornaments with great ceremony, and the tree still looks magnificent, I mean, maybe even more so as we try to create some kind of beauty in the wreckage that is our family, daddy and his girlfriend on one side, mom on the other, and us three kids in the middle, just trying to dodge the bullets. My parents are exhausting me. Every Christmas, we'd have to spend some time with Daddy and his girlfriend, and she'd show up with that big pig face hair of hers, and we'd all be sitting around wondering how we were going to answer Mama's question, was that woman there? And Daddy would just glare at us, expecting us to behave, and I'm having a really tough time taking him seriously because this once methodical, measured, conservative man is now wearing a gold chain, driving a lime green Eldorado, and dating a woman who is exactly the opposite of what he raised me to be. And maybe it's because there's just all this pain that we don't want to see, but during the separation, we play a lot of fake family. Fake family is when daddy would come over for dinner or holidays, and we'd act like he didn't have a whole other life and stand-in family. And my favorite fake family Christmas is when he stayed for a really long time with us three kids and mama, and we couldn't figure out why. And then we found out that Pigface was really mad at Daddy because she thought she was getting an engagement ring for Christmas, and instead, he gave her a blender. <laughs> so, four years after my parents finally divorce, my sister gets engaged, and we're ecstatic. We love who she's about to marry, and after all these years of bitterness between my parents, my family can use some good news and a fresh start. And I want to do a really nice toast at the rehearsal dinner, but I'm really nervous, and I'm not nervous about 
standing up in front of people. I mean, obviously like that. It, I'm nervous because it's the first time in years we're going to try to act like a family in public. And I'm not sure that my parents can behave. So I want to do a really nice toast for my sister. And I, but I don't have any ideas. I can't come up with anything. And a good friend of mine says, well, do you have any family traditions? I'm like, the only tradition we have is avoiding my father's girlfriend and my parents' animosity. And he pushes me a little further and he says, are you sure? And then I get an idea. At the rehearsal dinner, I walk up to the podium and I say, in my family, we have an important tradition. And I can see Debbie and Jimmy and Mama and Daddy looking at each other like, what is she talking about? So we have an important tradition that I want my brother-in-law to be a part of. And even close friends of the family who witnessed this explosion are going, you know, really? <laughs> and I hold up this styrofoam ball with my brother-in-law's name neatly spelled out in all capital letters. And there's this collective gasp among my family, and Daddy gets this really big smile on his face, and it's all I can do not to tear up. Daddy's been gone for years now, but there are Christmas balls for all three of the kids', of the kids spouses and all six of the grandchildren. I've been meaning to make one for my dog <laughs> because my husband and I don't have children, which is okay. I mean, it's what's best for us, but, but it is different. It raises all kinds of questions around legacy and what we pass on. I mean, the fate of the Trisha ball is anybody's guess. <laughs> but I still hang my ornament every year with great ceremony because even though I don't know who the Trisha Ball is going to, it always reminds me of where I come from. Thank you. Well, we hope you enjoyed this bonus feature, a story from Trisha Rose Bird. She obviously knows what she's doing. We always appreciate you listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's new record, Dive Deep, on Spotify or on iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. <laughs>